It's Friday, November 18th, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and I'm joined once again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. You're just back from a week of client meetings in New York and Toronto. I wondered if you could start by giving us a flavour of your discussions. What are on their minds over the Atlantic? Well, as you might expect, it's the same things that are um, interesting clients everywhere, which is inflation, monetary policy, and the extent to which central banks are going to have to drive economies into recession in order to squeeze inflation out of the system. I think if you take a step back, there was general sense that economists are kind of dancing around this idea that there might be a recession next year in some economies. Uh, I've seen some people in their 23 outlook saying 30% chance, 40% chance of a recession. We've obviously put our necks out and said, actually, there will be a recession in, in, in 2023, a mild one in the US and slightly deeper ones in in Europe. So I think sense that we, we kind of stuck our necks out a bit on that, but also tempered with better news on inflation, particularly in the US. So our our inflation forecasts showing that inflation in the US we expect to come come down a bit further and a bit faster than than most people, including the Fed. So a mixed set of data, but I guess the point is it's not uniformly gloomy. Just picking up on one of them, the the Eurozone industrial production number came in quite strong. But it does seem as though there were some distortions there with regard to Ireland's contribution. So to what extent should we take that data at face value? Is activity in the Eurozone as robust as it seems? And how sustainable is it? I think there's a general point to be made here, which is that the economic activity data, the hard economic activity data, have not deteriorated to the same extent anywhere that the business surveys have suggested that they might. So we've seen business service in the Eurozone and for that matter, the US as well, kind of weakened quite considerably over the past couple of months has not yet been reflected in the, the hard activity data. So data over the last week or so have perhaps been a bit on the whole a bit stronger than we'd expected, but that's particularly true in Europe. And you mentioned the, the Eurozone IP data. Um, digging down and Andrew Kenningham, our chief Europe economist, has done some work looking at this and published some notes last week. There does seem to be a few what you might say one-offs and peculiarities. Ireland's contribution to Eurozone GDP is one, but there's also, I think, a sense that the German car industry as well is a bit of a rebound in, in production there with some supply constraints are working through. And obviously, we've seen that happen in the US. It's happening later in Europe. But of course, once those supply constraints have kind of, and supply shortages starts to ease and they're working their way through, it's not going to be a kind of lasting recovery, I don't think. You also mentioned the the inflation numbers. We had another hot print for UK CPI this week, and the Eurozone inflation report was also above expectations. Our Europe team had a report out this week talking about how core inflation there is going to remain high into next year. And that's quite a contrast with the message that our US team had out earlier this month. And it's a question that's come up in a, a client briefing earlier this week, where the client was asking you know, the extent to which inflationary paths are diverging, and, and what's driving Eurozone inflation pressures that, that perhaps aren't being seen in the US? Yeah, you're right. It's an, in, it's an interesting divergence in the numbers. I think two things are happening with inflation globally. One is that the, the kind of pandemic effects, if you like, are rolling out off at slightly different times. So they're, they're already, we're already seeing signs of product shortages ease considerably in the US and slightly later in the Eurozone, but we're getting there. So I think that over the kind of the next six, 12 months, we're going to see a big drop in core goods inflation and for that matter, food and energy inflation across all economies. 
The other part of the puzzle, and the second part, is what's happening on the services side. And that, of course, links more closely to what's happening with general demand pressures in economies and the state of labor markets. Now, we have our own proprietary indicators looking at labor markets, Slack. You can find those on the, on the platform. But the short message is that there is some signs, finally, that labor markets might be starting to cool in the U.S., but we're not getting that evidence of cooling in the Eurozone yet. Now, I suspect we'll get there, but it's going to take a... The ECB has a bit more work to do to take some of the heat out of the labour market. So, I mean, if you think about it, there's been a consistent theme here, which is that the US experienced a faster recovery from the pandemic. The US experienced an earlier recovery from the pandemic. It experienced an earlier surge in inflation. It's seen inflation turn before the Eurozone. So the US has been kind of one or two steps ahead of the Eurozone throughout this period. And I think it's going to remain the case that the core inflation will turn in the, in the US before it starts to turn in the, in the Eurozone. But for all that, it does seem like central bankers are all still singing from the same hymn sheet. We had hawkish comments from Lagarde this morning, that's Friday morning in the UK, and James Bullard from the St. Louis Fed talking about his interpretation of sufficiently restrictive policy rates, saying they're somewhere between 5 and 7%, which is considerably higher than, than where they are now, and indeed higher than, than the peak that we're forecasting. So it doesn't sound like central bankers are willing to, to move too far away from, from their current stance, despite the, the market cheering from, from the CPI report in the US last week. No, and I think, to be fair, we wouldn't have expected them to have done that on the basis of one month's data either. There's an interesting note that Jenny McEwen, our chief global economist, put out uh, the week before last, looking at central bank communications at the point that they had enacted the, the final hike in a cycle or the final move in a, in a cycle. And there's no evidence that they're kind of signaling at the point at which they actually were done that they that they're done at that time. So I don't think this time should necessarily be any difference. I don't think we should necessarily expect central banks to be sending very strong signals about turning points in in the cycle. Certainly not on the basis of one month's data. You're right. They, the policymakers, particularly in the US, have been pushing back against this idea increasingly in the bond markets now priced in that 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 they're close to being done and there'll be a there'll be a turn next year. We still think that's the case. We still think by the first quarter of next year the Fed will be will be done and that by the end of the year it will be cutting. But you're right. There's no sense from policymakers that they're they're entertaining that just yet. So you're just back from North America from this client trip. I remember last time you went on a client trip. That was Singapore early October. You went to talk, amongst other things, about global fracturing. But I believe you wound up discussing whether the UK government had lost its mind. That was at the height of the, the trust quarteng market mayhem. We've now had the autumn statement from Jeremy Hunt, and the market seemed to have taken what he said in, in their stride. So has the UK government made its amends with the, the so-called bond vigilantes? It seems that way. But I think one of the lessons from the UK debacle for other countries, and I'll write about this in my note on on Monday is the old adage about credibility being difficult to win, but easy to lose, particularly in a world of rising interest rates, there's much less room for fiscal error. So it's been a pretty costly um, exercise for the UK government, this. Now that the budget that we had, or the, the autumn statement that we had this week, um, was a difficult balancing act, both politically and economically. Hunt had to win back some credibility in the markets, but also he was successfully, I think, managed to pull the trick off where a lot of the, the the squeeze is kind of backloaded. It's not going to come until after the next general election. It's all in the kind of back end of the forecast, 25, 26, 27. So he meets his fiscal rules without necessarily tightening fiscal policy at the point that the UK 
economy is now in recession. So I think a difficult balancing act that he managed to pull off, but it's going to be a pretty grim few years in the UK economy. And there's a lesson here for others, which is, as I say, in a world of higher interest rates, there's much less room for fiscal error. It's much easier to lose credibility with the markets, and it's quite difficult to win that back. We've got Thanksgiving in the coming week. It's likely to be a quieter one for markets. What's on your radar screen? Well, just moving on from the point about the UK's autumn statement and the fiscal debacle here, we're going to get news from Italy on the, the first budget, the new Italian government. So I think that's going to be something that we should pay very close attention to. Now, as far as we can tell what's been trailed in the media, it looks like there will be a bit of a fiscal loosening, but it will be t- uh, temporary, time limited, and around providing energy support to to households. Actually, that the medium-term fiscal plans of this Italian government still look reasonably sensible and in line with the EU's uh, budgetary framework. But that, I think, will be a, a key event next week, something in light of what's happened here in the UK that the market should be paying very close attention to. Now, this year's dollar rally is one we'll be telling our grandchildren about, but it has come off the boil over the last few weeks. Is it just a wobble or does it point to a more fundamental shift in currency markets? Here's a conversation from earlier Friday between Jonas Goldsman and Jonathan Peterson from our FX team about the dollar outlook. And it starts with Jonathan asking Jonas about whether we're past peak dollar strength. All right, so we're just about to close out another week in markets here. And even though it has been very volatile in markets uh, over the past couple of days, the dollar is still quite a ways off its peak. We've got a couple of questions from clients, and it's definitely something that's been covered quite a lot in the media. And that's kind of the key question of, you know, what's going on and do we think this is the the peak in the dollar? Yeah, that's right. It's been a pretty big move this past two two weeks really since this you know, the dollar did peak back in late September and it's down about six, seven percent since then. Most of that in the past couple of weeks. And I think there's well, I think we've we've identified three reasons that that might explain it. And I'll, I'll start with sort of going from from what I think is the least important to the most most important. And the first one might be what's going on in Ukraine. You've seen the reconquest of one of the major cities there by the Ukrainian armed forces. And I think there's a perception that that no one knows how the war is go, going to end, but that, that this is taking us one step closer to the end game, whatever the end game looks like. And that in itself is is a positive for markets and, and because it, you know, it, an end to the war would remove a big tail risk that's been hanging over us since that all started, really since the start of the year. And that would be a positive for, for especially for European currencies, because they're the ones that have been most affected. Now, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with the war. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, that we have any kind of special insight on that front. But I do think that's been a factor. The second one, sort of moving up the importance scale here, is is China and this talk about ending zero COVID and also the various support measures that they've put in place for, for you know, stimulating the economy, in particular the property sector that's that's been so weak for, for quite a while now. And obviously, a, you know, a, a re-acceleration or an improvement of the economic outlook in China would be a, a pretty big positive for the global economy, especially for commodities and, and sort of the, uh, the currencies of, of commodity producers and, and other economies that are, uh, trade a lot with China. So that's been a big move we've seen across equity markets. We've seen bond yields rise in China and, and currencies as well. There may be had a couple of really big updates off the back of that. And that, I mean, you know, that, that makes a certain amount of sense, but I think we were a bit skeptical that that's going to last. Mark and Julian talked about this topic on the podcast last week, and I think, you know, basically arguing that zero COVID is going to go on for quite a while, uh, a while yet because, you know, the underlying problem they have with, with low vaccination rates and 
especially among the elderly, that, that hasn't changed. And the reaction function from the government, I don't think, has changed either. So so I think the optimism on that front probably is is a bit premature. And finally, the big one that, that really moved the dial for, for the dollar is the US CPI number we got last week. And this renewed hope of a, a pivot from the Fed towards, you know, slowing down the rate hikes and really ending rate hikes and, and then shifting towards policy easing. Now, you know, the CPI data that day, we we saw one of the biggest single day moves in the dollar over the past few years. It was down more than 2%. So you look at the DXY index, you're looking at the historical record that, that, that mainly happens when the Fed is already easing policy and doing liquidity support in, sort of in, in moments of crisis. So three of the, the five episodes in the past 25 years, that, that was LTCM, 9-11 and various times during the several times during the, the the global financial crisis so you know that gives you a sense of just how extreme that move was um but it also kind of points to you know that in that context it doesn't make an awful lot of sense right the fed is is not right. easing yet they're not even close this isn't over it's one data point and, and we've seen a number of fed speakers make exactly that point you had bullet yesterday Mueller earlier in the week kashkari george sort of pretty pretty unison in saying you know this <laughs> You've overreacted, guys. So, right. so I think that that's what's been going on, and and I think you know for a lot of you know for all three of those things, I think we were a bit skeptical that that it's really more than a than a short term short term reversal uh, of, of the, the the overall upward trend in, in the dollar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to some extent, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you look at the the graph of the DXY, it's been almost a parabolic rise over the past year or so. Given how sharp of a rise it was, just on simple metrics like rate of change and with investor positioning being quite heavily skewed towards the dollar, it's not so surprising that we get a period of consolidation here. If anything, it would be a bit strange if it was just a one-way street. But I think part of the reason why it's been such an uninterrupted rally has been you know, the main factor you've mentioned here and what people are calling into question is the hawkish Fed and rise in bond yields over and above, you know, in the U.S. over and above what we see elsewhere in, in the world. and that's highlighted, I guess, a dynamic we've often referred to, which, you know, we tend to use the dollar smile framework where the dollar tends to outperform well, either in circumstances where the U.S. is, is leading a global growth phase or global recovery phase, or when there's concerns about global growth and you start to see financial conditions tighten, global trade slow, and the dollar benefits from, from safe haven demand. And we've seen at different points in the year and, you know, really over the past year or so, obviously the hawkish Fed and the U.S. just broad outperformance, both economically, you know, higher interest rates, et cetera. That's really been the main factor that was, I think, boosted by the, the terms of trade shock earlier this year. And that's really been the key driver. So it makes sense that people kind of call into question, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the turning point as the Fed you know, moves past peak hawkishness. But like you said, we're we're probably not quite there yet. And I think the other important thing to point out is that, well, what's the alternative? What's going to make the, the Fed ultimately go from peak hawkishness? It's not only, you know, inflation coming down, but as they've noted, a shift down, you know, to below trend growth for some period of time. And even, you know, they're becoming, I think, a little bit more vocal about risking a, an outright recession and being comfortable with that. And again, in that case, that's generally a very dollar positive environment. So we could move from a world where it's a, a sort of rates driven uh, dollar rally to a risk driven dollar rally that's underpinned mostly by by safe haven demand. And I think if you look back at past cycles, notably 2001, you saw the 10 year yield peak, two year yield peak and interest rate differentials peak well ahead of the dollar's peak. And that had a lot to do with safe haven demand and continued flows into the U.S. dollar. 
So definitely seems like as we take a step back, key drivers remain in place. And even as we transition to a world where there's growing concern about global recession, that's also dollar positive. So it's like we've sometimes said, you know, heads I win, tails you lose the dollar, just given the sort of unique global backdrop that we we have at the moment with the Fed going full speed ahead, but increasing signs of gloomy growth outlook. So yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's what our base case for the dollar is built on this idea that you know, we're heading into a, a global recession, you know, it's already started in some economies. You know, China's been weak for, for quite a while now. Here in the UK, we have negative GDP growth in Q3, and then that probably was the start of a recession here. And Europe is 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 headed the same way, probably the US as well next year, right? So, you know, we're we're forecasting a recession that I think, you know, that's definitely being talked about out there. And and the, to some extent, at various points this year, you could say, you know, markets are moving towards pricing recession, but the relaxation that we've seen over the past couple of weeks with, you know, equities rallying, bond yields coming down, credit spreads coming down, you know, that's not consistent with with market participants pricing in a recession yet. And I mm. think when that happens, I, I think you're right, we're going to see a significant rebound in the dollar off of the back of, of that kind of safe haven dynamic. So that that's a, a key part of our forecast. I mean, you know, just in terms of numbers, the DXY is about 106 this morning, 106, 107. And we're we're forecasting that to, to reach close to 120 in the first half of next year. So another 10% or so, I would say, from here. It's a pretty substantial move, certainly given how strong the dollar has been been already over the past couple of years. Now, the past couple of weeks, though, is it's probably the biggest challenge that we've seen to that bullish dollar view since the, that rally started you know, early 20, it's early 2021, wasn't it? After the mm-hmm. Georgia elections that you really saw the first turn towards the dollar bull market that, that then really sort of gone from strength to strength, especially this year. So it's fair to to ask the question, you know, what would make us wrong? What what scenario, you know, in what what would it take for, for our forecast to be wrong? What are we most worried about? Yeah, I would point out two factors in particular. I think for a, a sustained turn in the dollar, what we'd probably need to see is something like a Goldilocks scenario. You know, going back to the dollar smile framework, when the dollar tends to do worst, is an environment where global economy is holding up pretty well and other countries are holding up or just growing much faster than the than the U.S. economy. So that's a scenario in which maybe U.S. economic growth is weaker or something else causes the Fed to, to pivot much sooner than expected, even as everyone else maintains a fairly hawkish stance and their economies hold up reasonably well. Now, I think for a number of reasons we've mentioned before, we don't really see that being the base case, right? China moving past its zero COVID policy, that's, I think, part of that narrative. And maybe people thinking about echoes of past cycles where the Chinese government stimulated and that ultimately brought the global economic cycle, you know, back into growth mode. Yeah, China saving the day. We've seen China that a few times, the day. right? That definitely plays into that possibility that, you know, maybe we do get a Goldilocks scenario. Everybody holds up a lot better in the recession that we're expecting, or maybe there is no global recession, or maybe there's one that maybe... Countries now are experiencing recessions, but the U.S. is kind of out of sync with that cycle and the rest of the world starts recovering much sooner than the U.S. There's definitely seems to be a window there. Obviously, it's not our base case, so it's not really the one that we put a whole lot of weight on, but that scenario would have to look something like that. I would say the second factor relates to valuation. We just published our valuations monitor in the past month or so, and it definitely stands out as overvalued across a number of the different metrics that that we look at. And that incorporates relative macroeconomic variables like terms of trade, productivity growth, 
It also looks at simpler measures like long-term yield differentials, mean reversion, and really just across the board, you can see that the dollar is quite, quite overvalued. Now, it did look overvalued earlier this year, but I guess the difference is we've seen a shift in fundamentals in favor of the dollar, notably the terms of trade shock, along with the rise in the dollar. So it was overvalued, but wasn't, you know, really at extreme levels. Now, that's probably not the case, and we, we don't really see there being much scope for those fundamentals to shift further in favor of, of the U.S. relative to its other you know, major trading partners. So that all considered, I think, yes, the dollar is overvalued, but the macroeconomic scenario where we get the Fed to act in a certain way and you know, other countries ultimately outperforming the U.S. in terms of economic performance and remaining hawkish in the face of you know, slowing growth, that seems to still be quite a quite a narrow narrow window or a low probability scenario and I think in in our estimation. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean valuation we often talk about you think of it as being a necessary but not sufficient condition for, for a, a turn in, in, in the dollar or other currencies, you know. So I think you're right. You need you need not just the, that condition overvalued dollar, you also need a catalyst that that at least to you know, a shift in the a big shift in the outlook, shift in the the factors that that have been underpinning the dollar, and and you know you can see why the CPI and the the pivot narrative um, could be such a catalyst, but still seems a bit optimistic to hope for a Goldilocks scenario. You know, next year, I think we might get there, and you know, hopefully in twenty towards the end of next year, twenty twenty four, as as the as we see a, a recovery take hold, but until until then, unfortunately, it's going to be you know, more of what we've seen this year, you know, equity markets under pressure, risk under pressure, economies, you know, generally not doing so well, um, unfortunately. And I guess the other point about valuation is it's it's a difficult concept, you know, whether you look at equities or credit or bonds. I think it's particularly difficult with currencies because there's just so many factors that go into it. Mm. So, you know, on, on our models, the, the dollar looks, and I think we've put it like 15, 20% overvalued um, yeah. on a trade-weighted basis. Which is quite a lot, you know. Once you get to fifteen, twenty percent over over what, what looks like, you know, our estimates of fair value, then you, you got to pay attention to that. But the problem with a lot of these models is, you know, they they kind of assume almost assume the mean reversion because you know historically currencies are are strongly mean reverting both over the short term and the medium term. But what they, they struggle to pick up a big structural shift when things like um, terms of trade. They take months or even years to play out with those shifts and how it affects the the relative prospects of different economies. And and I think that you know the data you know they started earlier this year, so the data isn't really there yet, and it's hard to make a strong judgment right now. But I think there is a sort of you know if you think about it, another scenario where where the shift we've seen in energy energy markets this year proves partly permanent, and Europe and Asia are just sort of permanently worse off because because they. Price of energy, especially natural gas, is going to be, you know, substantially higher than it's been, you know, over the past decade or two. And the U.S., which now you know produces more energy than it consumes, so it's actually exporting this stuff, is going to be the big beneficiary of that, both directly through improvement in their current count in terms of trade, but also because a lot of industries are going to, energy-intensive industries in particular, are going to want to, you know, potentially relocate to the U.S. or expand in the U.S. and not elsewhere, and that. It'd be a kind of structural tailwind for the U.S. over over the medium term, and and that means that you know instead of the dollar the overvaluation being resolved by the dollar falling, it could just be that well the dollar stays strong or, or stays 
from current levels or even higher and and the fundamentals just improve for the us i don't know i mean that's a dangerous narrative to try to spin that's what people used to say in the 20 years ago the dot-com boom that it was some sort of permanent shift in favor of the us productivity mm. was going to be permanently higher and then therefore the dollar should be, be stronger and that that obviously all came to nothing pretty quickly and the dollar fell in the in the noughties but I don't know. It's, I think it's worth thinking about. It's an it's a possibility that you know a year ago it would have sounded far fetched. It's still a bit far fetched, but yeah. I think so it's even the longer term, possible. yeah, even the longer term or medium term case for dollar bearishness is isn't all that obvious, right? And I think summing it all up, it's really well. Seems like in the near term, the bullish bullish case for the dollar has definitely eroded, but it's not quite clear what the sort of off ramp is for the dollar or what it is going to be that takes the dollar much lower from here. Yeah, I think that's the way way to think about it. You, you need to be pretty optimistic about where the global economy is heading, where various things are going in order to to, to be a dollar bear at this a dollar bear at this point. And, and that's why I think, you know, summing it all up, that's why why we're sticking to our current forecast. I mean we still think the dollar rally has further to go. And that's it for this episode. You'll find all our work on Eurozone IP, on the autumn statement, the Italian budget, and the dollar outlook on our website, along with everything else you need to know about global macro and markets. That's capitaleconomics.com. But until next time, have a great week.